Even if you know very little about Kerala, you might associate the state with a couple of things. You might think of Ayurveda, elephants and beaches. And when you picture it, you might imagine a lone houseboat snaking down a green backwater. If you've been following this series, you'll know that Kerala's economy relies heavily on things that are native and unique to it. Its natural resources, its traditions and its heritage. Which is why, even if you haven't visited, you'll know about its beaches, its food and its history. What Kerala may have lost out by skipping the wave of industrialization, it made up by developing these other economies, the best known of these being tourism. But sectors like these, like handloom, like fishing, which are traditional and based on age-old practices, have suffered. And in the wake of the disasters, many initiatives by concerned individuals and groups have helped these communities. But with successive annual economic shocks, more and more questions are emerging around the institutional responses that are needed to significantly protect and revive these sectors. In this episode, we learn about efforts to build resilience into the livelihoods of the people of Kerala, looking at prominent economic generators like tourism and some of Kerala's other traditional industries. In their rebuilding lies Kerala's future. Welcome to Kalavasta, a six-part series on Kerala. This is episode five. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we have arrived at Tarantula. Episode 5 Fabric, Folklore and Fish For years, Kerala has had the reputation of being a place where starting a business was not going to be easy. But this created an unlikely opportunity in a state that seemed to have missed the industrialization wave. It remained green, many parts untouched, and people have carried on living in the way that they have done for centuries. It was only in the late 90s that Kerala's State Tourism Ministry came up with the God's Own Country advertising campaign to invite tourists from all over the world to experience the lush green, the snaking backwaters, the pristine beaches and the wild mountains. Up until then, India's tourism was defined by the Delhi-Jaipur-Agra Triangle and the beaches of Goa. What Kerala offered was something different. It was the beauty in the ordinary way of life that Keralites enjoyed. Kerala, in a sense, was ordinary India, everyday India. That ordinary can be extraordinary was Kerala's story. And still, a place, a great place to visit. Jose Dominic is one of the pioneers of heritage tourism in Kerala. He points out how Kerala's tourism began with small businesses. There were local entrepreneurs did what they could, which was small, in a manner which they knew which is local. So indigenous and small became the character of Kerala's tourism development, made possible because the previous, the high human development index. So Kerala was a very advanced state in terms of social indicators. But 
Kerala was the first Indian state to declare tourism as an industry and the first to trademark its tourism brand. It was no accident that it became a success. In 1985 or 1988, the share of Kerala in international tourism to India was about 1.5%. From that, a miracle happened that Kerala's growth in tourism grew from 1.5% share to 22% share in 2015. From 25,000 foreign tourists, now in 2017, it is about 10 lakh foreign tourists. So it's a spectacular growth taking place. For a state with 35 million people, it welcomed 15 million tourists in 2017 alone. So today, one in three new jobs comes from tourism. And almost 11% of our GDP comes from tourism, next only to farm. This is where it stands. You know, so tourism is not a solution, one solution for everything. It's, it's not a black and white story. This is Gopinath Parayal. See, I am a tour operator who is scared of tourism. He runs an award-winning tour company called The Blue Yonder, a responsible tourism company. Gopi has always been wary of the simple story about tourism in Kerala, which is that it has brought a huge amount of revenue to the state. Gopi began Blue Yonder after studying for a master's in disaster management in the UK, and instead of moving into the humanitarian sector, he found himself as a tourism entrepreneur. 16 years ago when he started the company he wanted to find ways to revive economic opportunities in parts of Kerala that he had grown up in places that held special meaning for everyone places of cultural importance to Kerala it was important for him to go beyond the personal attachment and to work in a way that local communities were revived he began with the Bharatapura river also known as the Nila Kerala has over 44 rivers but the Nila along with the Periyar and the Pampa are the most important and largest rivers in the state. The Nila finds its source in the Anamalai hills in neighboring Tamil Nadu and flows through the Palakkad gap in the Ghats into Kerala. The Nila brings water and life to the South Malabar region, crossing Palakkad, Malappuram and Thrissur districts, and it has always been a cultural icon where music, arts and other scholarship have thrived along its banks. Today it is also a river in decay. suffering from erosion and pollution it's very easy for me to say that i love the river uh, and bring it into a whole uh, romance but, but why should my neighbor also love the river there you know beyond the romance there should be some reason so an economic activity was very much important that's where we started looking at tourism as a supplementary source of income for these people the communities that gopi works with are farmers they're crafts people folklorists musicians and they curate unique experiences His tours may take you to a music school or on an exploration of a dance form. These are trips that immerse visitors from outside into the local culture. The experiences are built around stories and local heritage, and he says that the challenge in tourism is in maintaining the delicate balance between a commercial experience and an authentic one. So, it's important to get buy-in of the community, of the local governments, uh, even sometimes state governments to uh, move it in the right direction. the community should be able to say okay screw you we don't want your tourism you know we will do our stuff respect that and then figure out stuff you know so in every location we worked tourism was never the top priority 
tourism was always in rare cases alternative but 99% of the case where we have worked we have always looked at tourism as a supplementary source of income tourism is seen as a way to diversify livelihoods not replace them it adds an additional source of income for farmers traditional artisans and marginalized communities people talk about responsible tourism in kerala as a triangular model economic empowerment environmental and social responsibility this triple bottom line idea was formalized by the state in 2017 with the kerala government's responsible tourism mission but tour operators like gopi had been practicing these principles for some years because on the ground they could see the impact of climate change slowly affecting their local landscape it's you know those kind of things were visible and there were lots of studies that we were hearing like you know that in in baradapura some 23 kilometers inland they found sharks uh, which were not conducive otherwise in a freshwater reserve you know freshwater river even as far back as the mid 2000s there were stories in the news about climate change related devastation across the state and this is why early on and some years before the state mission gopi had already added a fourth pillar to his model resilience to climate change so all, all these things were like coming out straight in front of us and it was very clear if we are not going to be a community that is resilient when a climate change induced natural disaster comes there is no way we are going to overcome that so that is where this merging of my interest in disaster management and promoting sustainable tourism became one aim of the business Today the tourism industry has been hardest hit by the floods and the pandemic. After the 2018 floods, tourist destinations across the state suffered heavily. Nearly 60% of the damage was to infrastructure, not just hotels, but jetties, navigation canals, parks, restaurants, sanctuaries, not to mention the lost income from cancellations and reduced footfalls. Many of them shut for many months, and the floods came just before the peak tourism season from October to March. Many of the state's entrenched problems have been exacerbated by recent disasters. One, public infrastructure in the state is poor. Narrow roads lead to traffic jams and waste management is an overall issue that mars the beauty of the state. Two, tourist spends do not always reach rural communities enough. There need to be stronger links that help rural communities earn from tourism. Three, the quality of services is also an area of concern. especially with the rise of destinations in Sri Lanka that can offer a better more competitive experience but the havoc the floods caused were also partly due to years of poorly enforced building and land use codes thanks to all of this it has become clear that the sector suffers from a lack of disaster preparedness it is not resilient remember this is a sector that is vital to the state's economy it contributes 10% of the state's gdp and at one time employed nearly 25% of the state's workforce so a lot of people laughed at me at that time because it 2010 11 and no one was seriously talking about resilience at that time and unfortunately it took a flood and 6 years for us to realize the importance of the project that we ourselves kickstarted gopi and the communities he works with were able to respond when the floods devastated the state 
constantly questioned and constantly brought in this whole idea that being resilient is the only way to overcome the crisis. So that's why when the floods happened in 2018, we could move things, we could convince people and we could respond. And when we responded, we had our life jackets, we had our paddles, we had our canoes, we had our kayaks. And that's where people realize, oh my God, the money that we spent in these conservation tools over a period of time became a livelihood opportunities for communities through responsible tourism. And then the same material which we had invested in turned out to be a search and rescue tool, you know. So so it's a win-win situation. Conservation wins, community wins, tourism entrepreneurs make money. And in building resilience, we can go one step further. Are there, for example, mechanisms or instruments that can protect important industries? Instruments such as disaster risk insurance or social safety nets or strengthening the demand and supply chains by diversifying them? or a combination of all of the above, because disasters like the floods and the current COVID-19 outbreak are an opportunity to think systemically. When we met Joe Dominic, it was before the COVID-19 pandemic, and he pointed out that with every flood, people have come back every time, and it's because of this kind of thinking. What it showed is that what brings back people to Kerala is the strategy Kerala has adopted, or what is called as responsible tourism, and what is the ingredient of responsible tourism, which makes a destination in, in responsible tourism, a great place to live in is a great place to visit. I wouldn't say it's a shift. It's more like we merge all these things into a reality, you know. So, yeah, it created the focus on disaster management and uh, responsible tourism. The Kerala handloom cassaver, the starched white cloth with the real gold border, is one of the state's most recognisable emblems. This beautiful fabric is woven across the state by small clusters of weaver families who weave at home on elaborate looms, carrying forward a skill that has been passed down through the generations. These weaver clusters typically come together to form weaving cooperatives or societies. Along with koya, or the coconut husk, Handloom are traditional industries that provide direct and indirect employment to around 175,000 households, particularly employing women, as well as the landless and marginalized communities. Take, for example, the Chendamangalam weavers, who work in and around the eponymous town near Kochi, the state's economic capital. Chenamangalam, fabric of Chenamangalam, it is one of the most exquisite, delicate fabric that you can find in Kerala handloom. Chenamangalam weaves are so distinctive they have their own tag of geographical indication, like champagne or Darjeeling tea. The weavers are an older population because their children have moved away from the craft. Traditional handloom requires time and skill, and many have moved to power looms that are quicker and mechanized. These weavers are also fairly isolated. They continue in their traditional ways, and to some extent, the responsibility to keep these decaying crafts going has fallen on the shoulders of many of Kerala's local designers, like Lakshmi Menon, who worked with the Chendamangalam weavers during the 2018 and 2019 floods. They, they are really concerned about the future, but there isn't anything that they can do about it. You know, with their kind of exposure and their limited knowledge or capacity, they cannot do anything about it. It's completely rest on our shoulders, the so-called fashion designers. You know, it, it has become a responsibility of ours to actually, um, what is that, preserve this craft. 
Adding to this is the fact that the handloom economy in Kerala has traditionally centered around two festivals, the Harvest Festival of Onam around August to September and Vishu, the new year that is celebrated in April. Most of the weavers' annual income comes from sales on these two dates, when families traditionally buy new clothes, and if they miss even one of these windows, they suffer significant losses. And the flood was timed perfectly for that, you know. Perfectly timed for Onam. So the stock was uh, maximum in every society, and that is why they were most hit since a flood happened during that time. The floods entered the homes of the weavers and waterlogged all their stock. And like everyone else, the weavers were caught unaware. Most of their stock was damaged and their looms broke. Many local designers like Srijit Jeevan from Kochi volunteered to help these societies and the initial focus was on getting weavers back on their feet. The looms were brought back uh, not because of insurance but because a lot of uh, CSR interest was generated at that point of time. CSR or Corporate Social Responsibility Initiatives from the private sector stepped in to cover the costs of making new looms and in some weaver societies they built little shop fronts for the weavers to sell their fabric. So I think that had a major role to play than the insurance. Of course, I think the societies have insured their stock. But again, I'm not sure if they got like the total insurance for the entire value of stock. But uh, they did manage to get something, I think. Srijit also helped coordinate calls for Chain the Manglam on social media, which helped to link buyers online. When like a friend of mine who was uh, very active in the rescue operations in Chandamangala Mary, he wanted to check what the condition is when the water receded. This friend was Gopi Parayal, who had gone to visit the weaver societies of Chandamangalam. Lakshmi was most concerned with remaining fabric that was too dirty to be sold. The society was facing a loss of nearly 210,000 rupees, or just under $3,000. A huge amount for these weavers. And the weavers were ready to burn the cloth. Wet and dirty and all kinds of water has flown through it. Like, you know, you never know. I mean, what all things must have uh, gone through that, you know. And even after washing and chlorinating it, Lakshmi found that the beautiful handloom had stains. So I was thinking of, you know, what can be done with this. And when I had a closer look of the fabric, I could see the true representation of a Malayali in that fabric. Wherever you go, you see stains. And in every heart, there's a scar. That, that was what was the situation of that cloth also. It was a true reflection of what a Malayali was at that time. And that was how Chekuti was born, a doll stitched from the fabric. And by converting handloom fabric into dolls, they were able to increase its value. And we could make like 360 dolls from one sari at a price of 25 rupees, fetch 9,000 rupees from that soil cloth. If you, fi- if you buy a fresh sari, even now, you can get it for 1,200. But if you convert this into a Chekuti dolls, you'll get 9,000 rupees. So from 200 of such soiled, filthy sari, we got 18 lakhs of rupees. You know? So that is how we recovered the money very fast. In four months' time, 34 lakhs of rupees were given back to that particular society. But both Srijit and Lakshmi are clear that the industry needs to innovate and it cannot rely on volunteers to keep the momentum going year after year because this kind of support that rides on charity is difficult to sustain. It just, I, I felt the, the, how the water receded, the emotion, the goodwill, everything also receded along with that.
The challenge for this industry is survival, to keep the craft alive, which means making it more relevant today. Many people are very attached to the original white and gold Kerala sari, and there is a reluctance to move away from that one style. But there are only so many white and gold saris that people can buy and wear, especially outside Kerala. Especially in Kerala, I think it's high time craft communities look at uh, markets which are outside their normal comfort zone, which is perhaps the festival-oriented market. The resilience of the handloom industry depends on how sustainable, adaptable and innovative it can be. If it is able to find a market and if it is able to create meaning to a customer, it'll sell. There have been attempts in the past. The state government, for example, has since 2016 promoted handloom school uniforms for school children. But not everyone believes that this is the best use of the kinds of specialized skills you find in these communities. And then whatever the attempt, the true cost of the product also needs to come out. Now what happens is that to sell something at a cheap price, it has to be made cheap, which ultimately means that the people who are making it have to compromise on the cost, which again puts the, the stress back into this, uh, into this cycle of uh, having to make another cheap product. But at the same time, local customers also need to be able to afford it. So uh, I think it starts with design, it starts with marketing, it starts with understanding and identifying a system where there is regular work and regular income generation that can happen. And once that happens and the society starts running in a profitable way, then I think all of these set things can be implemented within a system. There are successful examples we can look to in other parts of India. Malka Fabric Collectives from Telangana and Andhra Pradesh, or Maheshwari Clusters in Madhya Pradesh, and even closer home in Kerala in Munar, where societies run by the Tata Tea Wives work with differently abled people to produce natural dyes. They are actually running like a proper business, even though it's, it's empowering craftsmen, it's putting people in a better place. Like a lot of these differently abled artisans have now been able to fund their own surgeries, have been able to fund their own marriages, have been able to fund their own houses with just the jobs that they're given. And it's run in such a nice way, in, su- in such a sustainable way. Initiatives like this build the industry's resilience for the long run. And they can potentially offer a great buffer to communities regardless of the disaster. So I think that's one of the most important steps that have to be taken to see how can a craft cluster run profitably, run in a way that it can fund its own people or its own processes without having to look at, say, rebates or uh, grants or uh, incentives from a government agency. The story of Kerala's fishermen and their role in the floods is already a legend that will be told for years and years. This is Robin. He's a fisherman from Pudyatura near Thiruvananthapuram and he is talking to us about how he first started fishing with his father as a teenager. Like many people from Kerala, he did a stint in the Gulf, the Middle East, but then returned to work in fishing. During the floods, him and a group of fishermen played a big role in rescue operations. We asked him to describe what happened. He says one night they were called out with their boats by the district collector. 
And they set out before the early dawn, using lights from their mobile phones and torches to guide the boats in. And Robin recalls repeatedly calling out, Is there someone there? Is there someone there? They found stranded families waiting for help in every house along the way. Elderly grandmothers stranded alone in large houses on the second floor or the roof, because by then the water had risen that high. And they kept rescuing people through the day. When their boat was nearly full, they saw two houses full of people, and from one of them, a young mother cried out, Save my child, even if you can't save me. Please save my daughter. Immediately, three people jumped out of the boat and told Robin, we will swim, you take the mother and child. He remembers them speaking to him in the local fisherman dialect. Anna, you go. We will swim and come. Fishing has always been a way of life in Kerala, but today it is probably one of the most endangered of all the activities in the state. It's a way of life. There are over 1.1 million fishermen, of which around 228,000 are active, and many of them still fish the same way they have for generations. But climate change is impacting their livelihoods. Weather patterns are increasingly unpredictable, the frequency of cyclones is increasing, and the Arabian Sea is warming steadily. This has affected fish populations and catches aren't what they used to be. To add to that, boats from other parts of India, and even from places further east, are coming to fish in the Arabian Sea, and competition from commercial fishing is threatening to oust smaller operations. In many parts, entire fishing villages are disappearing because of coastal erosion, with fishermen's homes often being the first to be washed away. It isn't just the fishermen alone who are affected. The entire chain, including the women who process the fish and sell the catch in the market, are very vulnerable. The loss of even a day's work is a high price that most can't afford to pay, and there are few safety nets for the workers. During the lockdown and forced due to the spread of COVID-19, Robin tells us his fishing was not too disrupted. Fish markets were closed for a short period when the entire state was shut down. Fisher workers received a small one-time sum in their bank accounts to tide them over, and when the rules were relaxed, fishing began again. They fish in small groups and small boats, and they come back in every day. And on days that Robin could not fish, he volunteered and delivered food to people in quarantine centres or at home. But fishing is still very hard work. It's dangerous and unpredictable, and there's a sense that fishermen have little control over their destinies. Robin says that the weather notifications that they receive ever since Cyclone Oki have helped. Before Oki, no one took the strong wind seriously, he says, but now they are more careful. It was very windy the day we spoke to Robin, and he had stayed back. But a fisherman's schedule is unpredictable, he says. Sometimes the government weather notifications come in after they have left for sea. Nothing is predictable anymore. When they're out at sea, suddenly there's heavy wind and rain. And then at that time, he says, the fisherman's life is in anyone's hands.
Seeing how the fishermen came out in large numbers to help in the 2018 floods when the state machinery was broken, putting the well-being of others above their own, Kerala ensured that they were better taken care of the following year, and more so in 2020. It helps that communities like the fisher folk are highly organised because targeting instruments like insurance towards them is easier. If the fisheries sector is to overhaul itself, it has to, like the agricultural sector, support the needs of the fisher worker, and it has to be done by understanding what their livelihoods depend on, their particular vulnerabilities and what they need. As important as the services they create and the experiences they offer, they cannot only be instruments for growth. The sector has to improve the availability of fish by protecting coastal and inland fisheries and making them sustainable over time, and by modernising the aquaculture industry. As with other sectors, this means building coastal infrastructure, equipping it with the technology it requires, and building the capacities to serve the people who work in it. Kerala's head start in building resilience has come from the series of devastations it has endured in recent years, and the state has proven its excellence at disaster response. But the pandemic has made clear that disasters are increasingly unpredictable. A more systemic overhaul of its sectors is required, one that mainstreams preparedness and robust resilience. In our next and final episode, we explore how Kerala is thinking of this next step of disaster risk management and the incredible contributions of more than half of Kerala's population in times of crisis, its women, and the inspiring groundswell of support, the many faceless, nameless people on whose shoulders the state's success stands on. Thanks to Joe Stominek, Gopinath Parel, Lakshmi Menon, Shrija Jeevan, and P. Robin. I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. Kala Vasta is brought to you by the World Bank. For more information, go to worldbank.org forward slash Kerala podcast.